Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at theturningtidespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode of Turning Tides contains graphic descriptions of war, murder, racism, violence, and sexual assault. As 1916 began, the Great War, which had been killing hundreds of thousands in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, entered its third horrifying year. In an effort to break the stalemate, French armies attempted to entrap the Germans at Verdun. In the nine-month-long campaign which followed, at least 800,000 people were casualties. On the Italian front, blockheaded Italian generals launched human waves at Austrian entrenchments, located deep in the mountains and along the fortified Isonzo River. The mostly illiterate Italian infantry were annihilated. In 11 separate battles, 600,000 Italians were killed. On the high seas, the Battle of Jutland was frightening both British and German politicians, as millions of dollars and man-hours had the potential to be sunk in a matter of moments. The German Navy got the better end of the engagement, but not before losing more than 2,000 sailors. On the other hand, Britain suffered over 6,000 losses. Americans watched events across the Atlantic with increasing uncertainty. Unrestricted German U-boat attacks had already irreparably damaged relations. In 1915, the Lusitania, a civilian cruise ship, was sunk, killing thousands of innocent civilians, many of them being U.S. citizens. As 1917 began, the straw which broke the camel's back ended up being the infamous Zimmerman telegram. Germany, realizing America's proclivity toward the Allies, decided to strike preemptively. They asked Mexico to invade the southwestern United States. This telegram sent ripples of consternation across America. In February of 1917, America severed all diplomatic relations with Germany. In April of the same year, America declared war on the German Reich. Labor leaders in America now had a stark dilemma in front of them. Many of them had abhorred the European war since its beginning. However, things had certainly changed. The rank and file of the AFL and the IWW volunteered in droves, 90% to be precise. They had served their country to bring workers better conditions, and now they would serve their country with the aim of bringing despotic rule and the German Hun menace to an end. The leaders of the IWW had to bite their tongue as they watched the country devolve into patriotic fervor for war. Everyone fell in line. Those who didn't found themselves prosecuted by a jealous judiciary imbued with extraordinary powers. Unfortunately for the IWW, their participation in the war as combatants mattered little. Their reputation was that of a violent revolutionary sect of agitators. In reality, Philip Dre says, quote, 
the IWW behaved more as a traditional labor union, unquote. However, the authorities believed the wobbly tiger could not change its stripes. The union was accused of being pro-German. Anyone who tried to agitate for labor rights was also pro-German. Germans who had lived, worked, and maintained a semblance of their original culture in the United States were ostracized. There was an active campaign against all things German, leading to the end of many German-language schools, which had helped maintain a flourishing German culture throughout the Midwest. The fears of the authorities were seemingly confirmed in July of 1916. A bomb exploded during a Preparedness Day parade, killing 10 and wounding 40 others. It was blamed on the IWW, although there's no evidence for the claim, and the perpetrators have never been apprehended. Once America truly entered the war, any expression of worker agitation was not tolerated, and for their part, workers hunkered down and began producing war goods for the doughboys at an exponential rate. No one could seriously consider the American worker disloyal. However, some oppression remained so intense that some workers felt they had no recourse but to strike. In Jerome, Arizona, copper miners were hoping for improved pay and working conditions in the maddeningly hot mines in which they toiled year-round. Their attempts to strike were met by the Jerome Loyalty League. These conservative vigilantes confronted IWW, guns in hand, and ran them out of town. When the IWW complained that their constitutional rights were being denied to them, the Justice Department responded by prosecuting the complainers. Another attempt to improve the working conditions of the fundamental wartime industry was made in Brisbee, Arizona. Since its founding, Brisbee has been home to the richest copper reserves in the entire country. These mines were worked by Slavic and Finnish migrants who were integral to the mine's efficiency. They struck for a meager $6 a day, which the company officials refused to grant. Additionally, the miners struck for an end to shoddy physical examinations, where company doctors would deny work to agitators on their payroll based on bogus medical claims. The strike was peaceful, but white people became enraged when Latine IWW members dared to approach white women at a laundromat and ask if they wished to join the union. Anti-Latine sentiments were rife all across the Southwest. The Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa had raided towns in the United States and killed civilians there. The local sheriff promptly arrested and deported 1,300 IWW members and local miners. They were dumped at the New Mexico state line over 180 miles from their homes and families. Some made the harrowing journey home. Others drifted into a life of uncertainty, torn away from their wives, children, and livelihoods. The local government had stooped to a shocking new low in order to control any form of dissent. This cruel efficiency was a bridge too far for William B. Wilson, America's first labor secretary. In an ensuing investigation, he had several mining officials and deputies placed under arrest, but the case was ultimately dismissed. 
Frisbee was a clear turning point for the labor movement in America. The forces of reaction and war controlled the country. In Butte, Montana, copper miners desperately set off to improve their daily lives. The summer of 1917 saw the asphyxiation of 164 Butte miners after a machine broke down and flooded the mine below with deadly toxins. Montana Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin, who was the first ever woman representative in American history, was asked to stand by the miners who had helped elect her, but she refused. Montana's copper bosses quickly formed vigilante committees to combat the unpatriotic miners. With the assistance of U.S. soldiers, the IWW was expelled from Butte, but not before the copper bosses hired thugs claimed the life of a legend. Frank Little was discussed briefly in the last episode, but his reputation within the IWW was one of a frenetic organizer and labor agitator. When his men were confronted by police, Frank Little would throw himself in harm's way, often to his own detriment. When asked to describe himself, he said he was, quote, half Indian, half white man, all IWW, unquote. He was also virulently anti-war, referring to the U.S. doughboys as, quote, Uncle Sam scabs in uniform, unquote. When Frank Little arrived in Butte, he was supported by two crutches as a litany of medical and physical problems made it very hard for Frank to walk under his own power. On the night of July 31st, six masked men arrived at Little's place of residence. They dragged him out in his underwear into a waiting car. They beat him, tortured him, and dragged him from the back bumper of their car for several hours before arriving at a railroad trestle and hanging Frank Little. Attached to this labor warrior's meek body was a note saying, quote, First and last warning, 3777, unquote. These numbers were the state of Montana's required dimensions for a grave. The ignorant cowards who killed Frank Little were never apprehended. The IWW were now persona non grata, in spite of the outpouring of grief over Frank Little's death. Every government agency, every local official, and even fellow unions considered the IWW to be unpatriotic at best and in league with the Germans at worst. With this in mind, it took very little time to pass the Espionage Act, which denoted any form of dissent against the government as treasonous conspiracy. The following year, the government doubled down on its authoritarianism, passing the Sedition Act of 1918. This act made it a crime to, quote, utter, paint, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language, unquote, in regards to the United States. In a final blow to the anti-war left in America, Congress passed the Immigration Act of 1918, which made suspected anarchists liable to deportation to their country of origin, simply because of what they believed. These three infamous acts were written so broadly that they could be interpreted in a variety of different ways. 
Those found guilty of violating these acts faced incommunicado confinement and were usually detained indefinitely. The Conscription Act was another bill which targeted quote-unquote aliens. Philip Dre says this act, quote, required all migrants to register with the draft, and any who begun naturalization proceedings could be called up for military service, unquote. In September 1917, the first of many raids on the IWW home office occurred. By the end of the same month, 165 Wobblies were charged with violating the Espionage Act. Among them were Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Joseph Etter, and Carlo Tresca. Ironically, the hundreds interred shared some of the same cells as the Haymarket Martyrs, now 30 years dead. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn felt the best way to fight charges was through individual trial, but Big Bill Haywood disagreed. The IWW simply did not have the money to defend all of its members who had been accused. Scandalously, Flynn wrote personally to President Wilson, apologizing for her radical past and promising to distance herself from the IWW. This was not the first time Flynn went over the IWW's head to seek leniency. Her lover, Carlo Tresca, was charged with being an accessory to murder during a labor dispute in Michigan. Flynn convinced four minors also accused of the crime to plead guilty, which would save Tresca from deportation. The judge presiding over the case of more than 100 Wobblies was Kennesaw Mountain Landis. He barred Jack Johnson, famous black boxer, from ever competing professionally again after he found Johnson, quote, in violation of the Mann Act, unquote. What had Johnson done? He brought his white girlfriend over state lines, and the court deemed this intolerable act akin to, quote, white slavery and sex trafficking, unquote. John Reed, leftist journalist, described Landis as a, quote, wasted man with untidy white hair, an emaciated face in which two burning eyes are set like jewels, parchment skin split by a crack for a mouth, the face of Andrew Jackson, three years dead, unquote. The 100 arrayed before Landis were charged with a vast conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States and aid her enemies through subversive labor radicalism. The main defense of the 100 was that many of them had never met before. How could they engage in a vast conspiracy? Their lawyer, George Vanderveer, was nicknamed the Counsel for the Damned. In spite of this, he fought vociferously for the Wobblies whom he defended. He drew upon the example of Californian Theodora Pollock to prove that his clients had had their constitutional rights besmirched. Theodora had gone to a Sacramento jailhouse to bail out her friend, who was a Wobbly. Once she arrived, she was arrested, the money she brought with her was purloined, and she was subjected to a full body search, which included a vaginal probe. When asked to defend themselves, one Wobbly said, quote, 
If you were a bum without a blanket, if you'd left your wife and kids when you went west for a job and never located them since, if your job never kept you long enough in one place to vote, if you slept in a lousy bunkhouse and ate rotten food, if every person who represented law and order beat you up, how in the hell do you expect a man to be patriotic? Unquote. One allegation the Wobblies found unable to counter was the charge of sabotage. Sabotage does not necessarily mean destroying equipment in private property. The word sabotage comes from the Belgian word sabot. Sabots were cumbersome wooden shoes which Belgian peasants wore. These shoes intentionally slowed down work, so you had to clunk around patiently or risk falling on your face. In this case, sabotage was the deliberate slowing down of work to negatively impact production quotas. This was a favorite strategy of the IWW, which it employed since its inception, so they could not exactly deny the claim. When all else failed, state prosecutors would read the most inflammatory statements made by leading wobblies completely out of context. It was a classic trial maneuver, and it worked as expected. When wobbly attorneys attempted to include federal commission reports in their defense, Judge Landis refused. In a final-ditch move, Vanderveer called Big Bill to the stand to try and connect to the jury. Big Bill said he was guilty of conspiring. Quote, We are conspiring to prevent the making of profits on labor power in any industry. We are conspiring against the dividend makers. We are conspiring against rent and interest. We want to establish a new society where people can live without profit, without dividends, without rent, and without interest if it is possible, and it is possible, if people will live normally, live like human beings should live, unquote. After an hour's deliberation, the jury found all 100-plus wobblies guilty. Judge Landis sentenced 35 to 5 years prison, 33 were given 10 years, and 15 men, the most guilty, were given 20 years. In Europe, American forces first saw action during the Battle of Cambrai. Many Americans were armed with shotguns for deep infiltration purposes. The most famous offensive in which American units were involved was the Mo-Argonne Offensive. Thanks to American participation, French units were able to drive over 19 miles into German territory and liberate the long-occupied city of Sedan. An American regiment even took part in the liberation of the Veneto from Austrian forces on the Italian front. Throughout the whole conflict, black soldiers were not allowed to fight at the front alongside their white countrymen. Their only recourse was to join French units who were desperate for any and all newcomers. The Harlem Hellfighters, or the 369th, were the most distinguished of these black military units, but they were a part of a much larger black contribution to the French war effort, as black Americans and black Africans fought for France in large numbers. These men fought for a country that wasn't theirs. 
simply in the hopes of preserving some sense of liberty across the world, knowing full well they experienced none at home. The intervention of American forces could not have come at a better time. In Russia, the country had thrown off czarist rule and replaced it with a moderate liberal democracy. But this democracy refused to end the fighting. Germany had been sending Russian revolutionaries back to the country in the hopes of destabilizing the nation. One of these revolutionaries was Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, leader of a small communist party called the Bolsheviks. Following a coup at the Winter Palace, the Soviet Union was declared, and a hasty peace was signed with Germany, as white and red Russians took up arms to battle over the newly born workers' state. In total, the First World War would claim over 15 million lives. This includes a million Armenians, many thousands of Italian civilians, and hundreds of thousands of Slavic peoples. America had come out of the conflict a superpower, rivaling, if not surpassing, France and the United Kingdom. R. Ernest and Trevor N. Dupuis contend that over 255,000 Americans were killed or wounded in the trenches of Europe. On the home front, the Great War changed America forever. In order to meet ramped-up production quotas, companies were finally allowing women and black people to obtain coveted jobs in wartime industries. Conservative unions like the AFL decidedly kept their heads down during the war years, and as a reward, wages did significantly increase across almost all industries. Something like a well-off working class was within reach. But then the war ended. The need for goods fell off the charts, and the world experienced an intense economic and political contraction. Governments fell, new nations rose, and revolutions raged. In spite of a multi-country coalition, the Reds held firm in Russia's industrial heartland. Under the leadership of Leon Trotsky, hordes of poor Russians were formed into the Red Army. Meanwhile, in America, President Wilson had been pushing for self-determination and the League of Nations. He campaigned passionately for the international order, and the strain induced a paralytic stroke in early September 1919. For the next year and a half, the president was, for all intents and purposes, an invalid. As a final blow to the dying president, his dream of the League of Nations fell victim to an isolationist Congress. On top of this, the years of enforced stability finally ended. The country was alight with racism, irrational fears, and labor violence. Labor unions were prepared to defend the gains in wages and working conditions they had won throughout the war. Strikes were the order of the day. Over a three-month-long period in 1919, 900 strikes occurred. Invariably, war veterans were on either side of these movements. Black workers were determined to defend their gains as well. They refused to be cowed by northern populations who wished to see them removed from their neighborhoods and their jobs. 
the summer of 1919 saw racial violence crescendo in Chicago when black swimmers accidentally drifted toward the white section of the ocean, after which a black teenager was stoned and drowned, which led to an incredibly violent race riot. In Seattle, the most obvious scenes of labor unrest took place. It began with the shipbuilders' union seeking better working conditions for the unskilled amongst them. In reaction, supervisors offered increased wages to the skilled workers in the hopes of breaking the union's solidarity. But the skilled workers refused outright. Seattle's mayor, Ole Hansen, was determined to end the standoff by any means necessary. He felt these strikers were little more than Bolshevik sympathizers who wished to destabilize the United States. For their part, the Union members of Seattle were supportive of the Russian Revolution, to the extent that longshoremen refused to load munitions on a ship bound for white Russian forces. When these longshoremen were attacked not once but twice by police, 35,000 walked off the harbor together. For one of the first times ever, IWW and AFL local union leaders agreed to call a general strike in solidarity. On February 6, 1919, 60,000 union workers in Seattle shut down the city. Not even the elevators would run. This was only the third general strike in U.S. history. The first two happened in St. Louis and New Orleans in 1877 and 1892, respectively. The first was shut down with state power, the other by court injunction. It remained to be seen what would occur in Seattle. Ole Hansen reacted immediately, equipping 1,000 state militia with a machine gun and 200 hand grenades. The Seattle Revolution, as it was being termed by authorities, turned out to be anything but. The Central Committee of Reasonable Union Heads, who conducted the general strike, made sure basic functions such as trash collection and milk distribution remain undisturbed, and there were virtually no instances of violence. Hansen refused to negotiate with the strikers and doubled down on his promise to shoot any number of people who attempted to usurp, quote, municipal authority, unquote. The Seattle strike came at a time when the government had shifted its focus from disloyal German Americans to disloyal socialist Americans. In March of 1919, Eugene Debs was convicted under the Espionage Act for decrying the war in public. During his trial, he proclaimed, quote, Your Honor, Years ago, I recognized my kinship with all living beings, and I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on earth. I said then, and I say now, that while there is a lower class, I am in it, and while there is a criminal element, I am of it, and while there is a soul in prison, I am not free." Unquote. This prison sentence nearly killed Debs, and for his health, his sentence was commuted by President Harding in 1921. But the president made a point not to pardon Debs for his crimes. Back in Seattle, the strike did not end in state-sponsored violence, nor the mass arrests of union sympathizers. It ended because of labor policing itself. Samuel Gompers recommended the strike be called off, 
the Seattle Central Labor Council agreed, and people returned to work. The press failed to mention this act of self-regulation. Instead, they claimed that Ole Hansen's tough stance on the strike killed the movement before it became a, quote, red revolution, unquote. The New York Times was front and center in their praise, saying, quote, he was strong enough and brave enough to stand up against the insolent alien efforts to reproduce here the horrible disorders that have ruined Russia. Ole Hansen defended and represented the inbred, undying, ineradicable American spirit of ordered freedom, unquote. Yikes. In spite of the relatively tame nature of labor agitation in Seattle, the rest of the country was not as blessed with peaceful resolutions. Throughout the nation, bombs were being delivered to the well-to-do's houses. People were being targeted specifically for the votes they cast, the money they made, and the properties they owned. The worst fears of the authorities were seemingly all coming true. Already in 1917, at the height of the Great War, a bomb explosion rocked a Milwaukee police department claiming the lives of ten people, nine of whom were uniformed officers. Ol Hansen was targeted as well, but he was not home, and the bomb did not go off. Ethel Williams had her hand blown off after opening such a package intended for her employer, Thomas Hardwick, co-sponsor of the Immigration Act of 1918. Dozens of similar packages were uncovered in a New York City post office, destined for the addresses of the richest and most politically connected men in America. Some bombs had small messages on them. One which was intended for Gimbel's department store read, quote, Novelty, a sample, unquote. Another said ominously, quote, there will have to be bloodshed. We will kill, we will destroy, to rid the world of your tyrannical institutions." Unquote. These bombs were linked to an Italian immigrant named Luigi Galliani. Arriving in the United States following a crackdown on socialists and anarchists in Italy, Luigi believed in insurrectionary anarchism. In his own words, Luigi wanted, quote, a society without masters, without government, without law, without any coercive control, unquote. Before the war, Luigi ran an anarchist newspaper, but quickly found himself on the receiving end of a deportation back to Italy. This series of bombings seems to have been a protest by his followers against his deportation. Another spate of bombs was sent out in early June, this time targeting judges, local officials, and manufacturers. The most sensational bomb was delivered to A. Mitchell Palmer's house, who was the acting attorney general. It detonated prematurely just outside Palmer's home, killing the bomber and sending his remains to all corners of the neighborhood. Awoken by the blast was Palmer's neighbor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This ramped up the Red Scare to new heights. Newspapers claimed that over 50,000 quote-unquote aliens wished to violently change the foundation of American society. 
Palmer, personally shaken but unharmed, set out immediately to bring about an end to radicalism of all shades in America. He ordered the Bureau of Investigation, forerunner to the FBI, to begin a massive coast-to-coast crackdown on subversives. Heading this attack against the left in America was 24-year-old J. Edgar Hoover. As the Red Summer ramped up, new crises engulfed the nation. In Boston City, policemen grumbled over unsafe and egregious working conditions. They wished to create a municipal union to defend their interests. The AFL rushed to the policemen's side. Unfortunately, the timing for this municipal union was poor. People saw Bolshevik invaders attempting to cement control of the police department, and they balked at the idea of police officers striking for their rights, regardless of how intolerably officers were treated by Boston authorities. They made on average 1100 a year, but they were expected to shell out $300 for their uniforms and equipment. Forced into 12-hour shifts, many officers had no recourse but to stay overnight at the precinct. Conditions inside the precinct were decrepit. In one case, 135 officers shared four toilets, and officers constantly battled vermin, which had invaded their living quarters and, quote, ate the leather from the helmets, unquote. The Policemen's Union of Boston was formed to try and address these fixable issues. The police commissioner turned on his men and forbade them from joining any outside organization, save for the far-right American Legion, of course, on the threat of expulsion from their jobs. He had complete legal authority to do so, as the Supreme Court had imbued employers with near-complete control over their workers. The mayor of Boston was sympathetic to the striking officers and asked for a committee to be formed to search for a compromise, but the police commissioner had the total support of Massachusetts Governor Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge believed passionately that essential municipal employees had no right to strike or form unions. He was in turn supported in his beliefs by the head of the American Bar Association, who said, quote, It is as true as when Christ walked by Galilee that ye cannot serve two masters. Unquote. The policemen saw no problem whatsoever in banding together to support one another's betterment and protection. Additionally, a good majority of those employed as police officers were previously Union Teamsters and Longshoremen. The commissioner and governor alike, refusing to budge on their position, began to enlist volunteer forces to patrol the streets. This included 150 Harvard attendees. The police officers refused to be treated like tools by an unfeeling state government. They voted 1,134 to 2 to strike. On September 9th, at 5.45 p.m., 1,500 Boston police officers walked off their jobs together. The day of the strike was well publicized, and looter insurance became exceedingly popular throughout Boston. With such sensationalized media portrayals, it's little wonder the streets devolved into such chaos that night. The volunteers were overwhelmed and untrained. 
The mayor was forced to call in 5,000 state militiamen after Coolidge again refused to compromise with strikers. In Skolai Square, these militiamen opened fire on an unruly mob and several Bostonians were killed in the volley, while dozens were injured. Samuel Gompers, now old but just as keen in mind, begged Coolidge to reconsider his position, saying, quote, The situation in which the policemen found themselves today was provoked and practically forced upon them by the autocratic action of Police Commissioner Curtis, who at any time might have honorably settled the dispute by such an action as is naturally expected of a public official in his responsible position. Unquote. Coolidge responded with a now famous line, quote, There is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. Unquote. Coolidge became a press darling overnight, as newsmen compared the unionization of police officers to quote, Americanism versus anarchy. Unquote. Going a step further, Coolidge barred any and all officers who participated in the strike from ever getting a city job again. Meanwhile, Police Commissioner Curtis filled the ranks of his new-look BPD with war veterans who were in ample supply. In spite of the failings of work actions in Seattle and with Boston's police officers, there were several strikes which achieved success and, most importantly, garnered public support. The 1919 Actors' Equity Strike was an unprecedented victory for the theater actors of the United States. Often barely considered laborers, actors across the country were subjected to monopoly rule by a single contractor who owned 75% of all theaters across America. Actors were not paid for rehearsal, and rehearsals could last an indefinite amount of hours. They were forced into so-called joker clauses, which stipulated that managers and directors could fire them if they were not satisfied with their performance. If shows were canceled, matinee performances were scheduled for the next day. Performers were not reimbursed for canceled or rescheduled shows. The nomadic nature of actors made them especially susceptible to heavy-handed managers. This made actors' equity essential, as the trade generated millions of dollars in revenue, while the performers made barely a pittance. The AFL rushed to the side of the striking actors, and the actors raised funds with once-in-a-lifetime performances and collaborations at the Lexington Opera House, which generated $31,000 for the strike fund. After the AFL barred the doors to a non-union vaudeville house, costing the theater owners $37,000 in a single night, the managers agreed to an unprecedented deal. Travel, costumes, and overtime were to be paid by managers instead of by the actors. And the managers also agreed to only hire based on the union shop model. Across the country, the Red Summer was tearing at the fabric of American society. In the steel industry, the wartime improvements in benefits and wages had passed steel workers by in a large way. This was the case in spite of the fact that U.S. Steel made four times as much profit then, compared to the pre-war era. 
This was largely due to the fact that steel workers had not had a national union representing them. The amalgamated steel workers had died a violent death during the homestead strike. A new massive conglomerate, calling itself the National Committee for Organizing Iron and Steel Workers, was headed by William Z. Foster. Thanks to wartime recommendations under the Wilson administration, collective bargaining became a recognized policy, so this new union found fast-growing membership. With the union's massive membership, it was expected that contract negotiations would go smoothly. But chairman of U.S. Steel, Judge Albert H. Gary, refused to negotiate with the steel workers' representatives. On September 22, 1919, 350,000 steel and iron workers struck nationwide for union representation and a basic wage increase to meet the trying post-war times. The strike occurred at the peak of the Red Scare and the peak of Wilson's national campaign for the League of Nations. Wilson could have been a true champion for working rights, but Emma Goldman says he, quote, wrote and talked democracy, acted despotically, privately, and officially, and yet managed to keep up the myth that he was championing humanity and freedom, unquote. As the steel strike ramped up in intensity, Judge Gary continually refused to negotiate. He said he accepted the right of workers to form unions, but detested the closed-shop model, saying, quote, If such a minority were to control the industries of the country, it would be national decay and defeat in the trade competition with other countries, unquote. Judge Gary was right. The minority of businessmen, bankers, politicians, and billionaires who have put America six feet under have truly decayed this nation. In one of the craziest moves ever, John D. Rockefeller, the butcher of Ludlow, came rushing to the defense of the steel and iron workers. Arguing for the closed shop, he said to Gary, quote, Surely it is not consistent for us as Americans to demand democracy in government and to practice autocracy in industry. Unquote. These arguments did not make Judge Gary concede, and he remained obstinate in the face of increasing violence. Three months into the strike, martial law, agent provocateurs, and state violence were used to corral the strikers. In total, 18 people would be killed, hundreds would be wounded, and thousands would be arrested. In West Natrona, Pennsylvania, a posse of special deputies, or thugs with state power to kill, executed labor activist Fanny Sellins and a colleague as they were on the road to lodge an official complaint. The deputies shot her at point-blank range four times, then cudgeled her over the head with the ends of their rifles. Fanny's skull was completely destroyed. A picture of her mangled face made it on to Union buttons, and her death proved a rallying cry for Union workers everywhere. Even in this new world run on oil, Union activists were still being butchered in the streets. Fanny Sellins' death proved for naught, as railroad unions across the nation refused to strike in solidarity. The importation of thousands of southern black strikebreakers, many of whom had no idea they were taking other people's jobs, brought production back up, 
and the constant red-baiting of hard-working Americans destroyed the strikers' resolve. In the end, the Union sought mediation, while Judge Gary sought the killing blow. In January 1920, the strike was dead. It was a sign of things to come for American labor. Underground, the nation's coal miners saw serious wage increases and better working conditions throughout the Great War. Additionally, the United Mine Workers found it much easier to organize because of President Wilson's collective bargaining stance. Following the war, coal operators wanted to turn back the clock on years of betterment. In response, 500,000 coal miners blew out their headlamps and went home in protest. Winter was coming, and this strike promised to be devastating to a country still transitioning from coal to oil. The strike seriously frightened the powers that be, so much so that they returned to an old tactic, the injunction. The AFL denounced the judge who brought the hated injunction back into American jurisprudence. But John L. Lewis, president of the UMWA, understood clearly that all powers were now arrayed against his miners. He ordered his men back to work, saying, quote, We are Americans. We cannot fight our government. Unquote. This line made Lewis one of the few loved Union leaders of the era, and the man's lively nature made his speeches quite remarkable. The strike nearly continued over Lewis's head, but the government stepped in and offered a 14-cent wage increase, which miners begrudgingly accepted. In Centralia, Washington, two sides of the American coin stood arrayed for battle against one another. The IWW and the American Legion were both very popular in the state, with Centralia being the front lines of this ideological struggle. Already in 1918, Wobbly offices were ransacked by American legionaries on Memorial Day, and the police sat by idly as this breaking and entering occurred. In November of 1919, rumors of another raid were being spread to Wobbly officials. The American Legion was planning to rip apart a new IWW hall, using an Armistice Day parade as cover. The IWW would not allow this a second time. They posted armed combat veterans in ambush for the expected attack. A former All-American football player, Warren Grimm, was the leader of the American Legion assault squad, and as rumored, they broke off the parade route and charged the IWW hall. Wobbly riflemen opened fire, killing Grimm instantly, but the American Legion had superior numbers, and they forced Wobbly gunmen to retreat. Wesley Everest was one of these Wobbly gunmen. He was decked out in his army uniform, which he wore in the muddy fields of France. During his escape, a carload of men chased him down. In response, Everest turned on the car with his pistol, saying, quote, Stand back! If there are bulls, policemen, in the crowd, I'll submit to arrest. Otherwise, lay off me, unquote. Dale Hubbard either did not hear or did not care to hear what Everest had to say. He stepped forward to confront him. Everest stood his ground and gunned down Hubbard where he stood. Everest was then swarmed by the irate reactionary mob, after which he was beaten and dragged to jail. That night, the streetlights were conveniently doused, 
as an angry mob quote-unquote broke into the jailhouse and marched the battered and bloodied Wesley Everest out of his cell one last time. As he was being dragged away, Everest shouted, quote, Tell the boys I died for my class, unquote. Everest was found hanging from a tree branch just outside of town the next day, still wearing the uniform of a country that refused him his rights, simply because of his politics. In March 1919, the Third International met in Moscow. The meeting embraced the policy of world revolution. This policy frightened American authorities but heartened American leftists. In the election that year, Eugene V. Debs garnered almost one million votes across the country, in spite of the fact that he was running his campaign from a jail cell. Besides these signs of discontentment in the country at large, the Socialist Party of the United States was rupturing. First, the left wing of the Socialist Party broke away, and then the left wing broke again into immigrant and American communist parties. The American communists were led by journalist John Reed, who had been growing increasingly radical since witnessing firsthand the Bolshevik Revolution and writing his account of the upheaval in Ten Days That Shook the World. Moderates were equally impressed by the workers' state which was being built in the Soviet Union. Lincoln Steffens, famous muckraker journalist, said, quote, I have seen the future, and it works, unquote. Combined with increasing union membership and labor agitation, the threat of communism was the one true motivator of government decision-making during this time. New steps were taken to prevent the spread of Bolshevism. In turn, Bolshevism became a catch-all term for any and all disturbances the government could not understand. Raids increased, anti-Russian sentiment festered, and completely peaceful citizens were accused of vast and violent conspiracies. A number of solutions were put forward to deal with the increasing number of political radicals and aliens who were interred in American jails. Buffalo's chief of police wanted them all put up against the wall and shot. Tennessee Senator K.D. McKellar wanted Guam turned into an American penal colony. In the end, American authorities decided to send these radicals away. Thousands were deported for participating in, quote, reading circles, musical events, and English language classes, unquote. 249 left on the first boat. Among their number were Alexander Berkman and Emma Goldman. Speaking on being deported, Goldman said, quote, I do not consider it a punishment to be sent to Soviet Russia. On the contrary, I consider it an honor to be the first political agitator deported from the United States. The Tsar of Russia never resorted to such autocratic methods as the government of the United States has in dealing with Russians. This practice of deportation means the beginning of the end of the United States government." Unquote. In celebration of the departure of many Reds, the Cleveland Plain Dealer wrote the following limerick, quote, I saw fair Emma leave our shores, and crepe was festooned on her lid. She sailed with many other boars who talked too much, as Emma did, unquote. 
By January 6, 1920, an auspicious date, 10,000 immigrants and suspected radicals were in government custody for a large litany of charges. Most were completely bogus. Unfortunately for the authoritarians and reactionaries in America, there was a majority who saw fault in the government's actions. People began to wonder if America could have erred. In April of 1920, the New York State Legislature expelled five rightfully elected socialists. Even democracy was not safe in America anymore. Few New York congressmen stood up for the socialists in their midst. One who did was the son of Theodore Roosevelt. Although he personally detested socialism, he said that to remove men simply because of their opinions would be, quote, a crime against representative government, unquote. The press harangued the legislature in repeated attacks. They pointed out that even the Russian czar allowed socialists to sit in the Duma or the Russian parliament. Additionally, the planned deportations irked many moderates and even liberal conservatives. A famous cartoon of the era shows the Statue of Liberty being blotted out by the smoke of steamships carrying deported political prisoners. When it was discovered that some of those being deported were married men who had been unable to say goodbye to their families before being sent away, the low murmuring of discontent became outright anger. These men and women were sent away without charges, without verdicts, without judges, and without counsel. Public opinion was once again roused during the procession of the Supreme Court case Abrams v. United States. Abrams was a Russian anarchist who was arrested under the Sedition Act for daring to print anti-war pamphlets. This case is well remembered alongside Schenkt, Verse United States. Attorneys for the United States argue you would not yell fire in a crowded movie theater if there were none, and in the same respect, you would not argue for an end to a war while your country was currently embroiled in one, which is convoluted at best. However, the government claimed that both of these scenarios were equivalent in that they both demonstrated, quote, clear and present danger, unquote. Therefore, free speech was not protected under these circumstances. This argument held once more in Abrams, but the dissenting opinion influenced Louis Post, nevertheless. Post was acting Secretary of Labor, and he quickly ended many of the egregious policies his predecessor had either allowed or unknowingly let slip. Immediately, Post began to cancel deportations and release many of the accused. Post began to unearth the true extent of civil rights abuses. In Detroit, he claimed subversives were mailed a package, which had been previously packed with communist propaganda by federal agents. When the package arrived, the people who opened it were arrested. In a soon-to-be classic J. Edgar Hoover move, the head of the Bureau of Investigation began looking into his boss and his political allegiances. Hoover and Palmer, the attorney general, began putting out feelers to the House Rules Subcommittee. They were attempting to get Post impeached. The subcommittee saw no reason for such an action, but Post demanded a hearing. 
he expertly used it to unveil to the nation the range of America's extra-legal activity. It shifted public opinion in a major way and showed there were still some people in the American government who cared about truth and real justice. In another huge blow, the courts even began to side with communists and leftists who were accused of subversive activities. In Collier v. Skeffington, Judge George W. Anderson went so far as to claim that Hoover and his agency were, quote, un-American, unquote. He goes a step further, saying that through the use of these tactics and spies, the Justice Department, quote, operates some parts of the Communist Party in this country, unquote. It was damning criticism, but the true orchestrator of the end of the first Red Scare was actually J. Edgar Hoover. A letter surfaced where he demanded another roundup of radicals, saying his agents should, quote, arrange radical meetings, unquote. It was entrapment on a disgraceful level. The fact J. Edgar Hoover even had a career after this is disgusting. Even the Christian Science Monitor refused to stand by Hoover and his corrupt authoritarian institution. The final gasp of the Red Scare was in late April, when Palmer claimed to know for sure that a massive labor uprising was planned for May 1st. Troops marched into cities across the country, and businesses closed their doors in anticipation for upheaval. There was not a single report of violence, nor labor disturbances, anywhere in the entire country. Later that same month, the newly founded ACLU released a sweeping critical document written by many of the most prominent judges in the nation. It went into horrid detail of the conditions of many of the radicals who had been interred by the state. They were kept in so-called sweat rooms, where federal officials denied sick men medical care and threatened the able with death. Hoover ordered a sweeping investigation into the private lives of the judges who authored this attack. Brought before the Senate, Palmer blamed Hoover, Hoover blamed Palmer, and both were obstinate as witnesses. In New York City, the unprecedented wealth created and traded on Wall Street was seen as an impressive symbol of American capitalism and, more importantly, American power. For anarchist Mario Buda, it represented everything he hated and everything which kept him oppressed in the slums. He was an avid follower of Luigi Galliani, and also best friends with Niccolo Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, two Italian immigrants recently charged with the sensational murder of two payroll delivery drivers in Massachusetts. On September 16, 1920, at high noon, a horse-drawn carriage rumbled onto Wall Street. Those about to leave for lunch would have no way of knowing that strapped under the horse-drawn wagon was over 500 pounds of dynamite. The driver ran from the wagon just in time as it and the horse which was carrying it became virtually atomized. The bomb struck with ruthless abandon just outside the J.P. Morgan building. Buddha may have hoped that the bomb would kill many millionaire capitalists, but in reality, 
40 white-collar workers were ripped apart, and 150 others were mangled physically and emotionally for the rest of their lives. To this day, it is the single worst instance of terrorism committed by a left-wing extremist in American history. It may have been a revenge attack against the arrests of Sacco and Vanzetti, or it could have been an obvious symbolic attack on such a well-known American institution. The IWW was dying the death of a thousand cuts. Being constantly in and out of court, most of their energies went toward appealing cases and raising money for bail. They managed to raise enough in August of 1919 to secure the release of 46 Wobblies. One was Big Bill Haywood, who, during his time in prison, had begun to break down physically. He was hobbled and not the same rabble-rouser of old. Instead of being made a martyr, Haywood discreetly snuck away. For many months, Haywood could not be located until he turned up in Moscow. In the nadir of his life, Big Bill Haywood spent his final years a part of this worker's paradise. The all-American miner and legend of the Old West died lonely, isolated and depressed in 1928, and is buried in the Kremlin Wall necropolis. Eugene Debs spent his last years attempting to recover from his time in prison, but in late 1926 he succumbed to heart failure and is buried in Terry Hot. Lucy Parsons, the longtime labor radical, would outlast them all. She spent her final years on a never-ending quest to make sure her husband was remembered. Never remarrying, she wrote a book on her husband's life, which she sold out of shopping bags on the Chicago streets. She lived an otherwise quiet life in a small cottage. As time wore on, she lost her eyesight and became a feeble shell of the woman she once was, but she lost none of her edge. At the height of the Great Depression, she was found leading cheers for, quote, glorious anarchy, unquote, in the streets. On March 7, 1941, a fire started in her cottage. She could not escape the flames. Years previous, she attempted to express in words the bitterness she felt at having lived through almost 90 years of racism, oppression, and loss on an unbelievable scale. She wrote, quote, O misery, I have drunk thy cup of sorrow to its dregs, but I am still a rebel. Unquote. The reactionary violence perpetrated against unionists and white workers was nothing compared to the campaign of extermination and isolation which white mobs inflicted on black people across the nation. As if things could not become worse for black workers, this period saw the rise of the Ku Klux Klan once more. They spread their influence throughout the country, becoming heavily involved with conservative politics and committing a fair share of murders against unionists like the IWW. These sad excuses for human beings hid and still hide their faces from view, using anonymity as a weapon. They threatened, attacked, assaulted, dynamited, lynched, and killed in the dark, often shooting their victims in the back or attacking them in gangs. 
in spite of numerous laws against such terrorist associations, these groups grew to new acclaim across America. In 1917, white mobs and state troopers teamed up to kill seven black people in Chester. In East St. Louis, upwards of 150 black people were murdered in mob violence. In Elaine, Arkansas, over 200 black people were butchered. The aforementioned Chicago race riots saw the deaths of over 30 black people. In the nation's capital, 40 black people were killed, while another 150 were injured by irate and out-of-work war veterans, angered that their way of life had been altered after the World War. In 1920, mostly black Union coal miners began to strike for higher wages and better conditions in Alabama. At least 16 people died, a vast majority being black. In Tulsa, bombs were dropped by aircraft on the all-black Greenwood district of the city. In the carnage, perhaps 1,000 black people were killed or injured. While the Greenwood district was a smoldering ruin, displacing thousands more. Florida bore witness to some of the worst racial violence in the entire country. In three separate massacres, a total of almost 200 black people were killed by white gangs. Lizzie Jenkins, the executive director of the Real Rosewood Foundation, put this horrific time period in perspective, saying, quote, it has been a struggle telling this story over the years because a lot of people don't want to hear about this kind of history. People don't relate to it or just don't want to hear about it. But Mama told me to keep it alive, so I keep telling it. It's a sad story, but it's one I think everyone needs to hear. Unquote. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, and his legislature have relentlessly attempted to cover up their state's incredibly racist past, even passing into law new guidelines on how the Okohee Massacre, where 35 black Floridians were murdered by 200 armed white thugs, should be taught. Florida's teachers are now required to tell students this massacre was an act of violence, quote, committed by both sides, unquote. Meanwhile, this quote-unquote man marked the 100-year anniversary of the massacre by declaring November 2nd Okohee Massacre Remembrance Day in 2020. It's truly incredible the lengths to which those in power will go to remain in power long enough to commit atrocities. In West Virginia, the past few years saw a steady decline in the rights previously enjoyed by unions and citizens alike. The state legislature was increasingly influenced by big coal and railroad magnates, and they went to new lengths to defend their vested interests. With the fear of Bolshevism everywhere, the state legislature passed laws forbidding the display of the red flag, quote, or any other flag, emblem, or sign of whatever nature, unquote. 
A person found guilty of violating this new law found a $500 fine on their head. And if charged again, they would face felony charges and prison time. To enforce such extrajudicial laws, the state legislature also created an entirely new state police force. Representing tens of thousands of West Virginia's miners was the United Mine Workers of America, or UMWA. Under the leadership of local union head Frank Keeney and his advisor Fred Mooney, both were tireless advocates who had more than a few skeletons in their respective closets. One of their main lieutenants in West Virginia was Bill Blizzard. Alongside his mother, the Blizzards were virtual labor kingpins in their local Boone County. Just south of Boone County lay Logan County, home to the largest non-union coal mines in the state. Logan County was also home to Don Chaffin, the fiery, wealthy, and irascible sheriff. He lorded over the county like a medieval baron. His one aim was to keep the UMWA out of, quote, his county, unquote, by any means necessary. At any moment, Chaffin could call 500 men to arms in order to stomp out even the slightest hint of unionism. When two unionists, who were dispatched by Mother Jones, were discovered in Logan County, Chaffin, quote, took them up to Blair Mountain Ridge personally, unquote, and wanted to kill both of them right there and leave their bodies in a shallow ditch. A deputy intervened and advised the sheriff, quote, You can pistol whip them if you want, but I don't think it would be a good idea to kill them, unquote. Anyone who was not recognizable to Don and his deputies of the quote-unquote law were harassed and pressed for papers and purposes. James Green says, quote, The chief clerk of the State Department of Mines arrived at a Knights of Pythias meeting in Logan. Chaffin's deputies demanded that the visitors state his name and his purpose. When the clerk told them it was none of their business, the officers beat the man with blackjacks and left him on the street unconscious, unquote. Chavin's main concern, however, was with policing the local miners in his county. Chaffin regularly hired miners to spy on their co-workers under penalty of death. Luther Mills, a miner, was told he would be a, quote, dead black man, unquote, if he refused. This turned Mills into a lifelong union member once he was able to escape from Chaffin's kingdom. When Keeney attempted to send union organizers in a caravan and Chaffin caught wind of it, the caravan was met at the county line by 50 heavily armed men and given a choice, turn back or stay and die. One man who refused to be intimidated by Chaffin was Devil Ants Hatfield, patriarch of the Hatfield family of Hatfield-McCoy fame. He lived deep in the country, but his influence extended past Logan County and into the very workings of state government. Hatfields were everywhere in West Virginia. Many used their famous kin to propel careers for themselves in law enforcement and local politics. 
De Valance, even in his advanced age, was not a man to be trifled with, and he became irked by Don Chaffin's high society attitude. On several secret occasions, De Valance met with Frank Keeney after Keeney participated in a series of harrowing nighttime horseback rides. On September 1, 1919, following months of conspiring and planned deceptions, armed miners began to march on Marmot, West Virginia. A reporter on hand was baffled at the seeming spontaneity of the armed march and commented on the shared telepathy of the miners, at which Mooney and Keeney shared a not-so-subtle smile and nod at one another. This march was designed and executed by them to stoke the flames of unionism in West Virginia. With tensions rising, Chaffin preemptively struck. He went on the warpath in attempts to find Luther Mills, the black miner who escaped his clutches. He struck out deep into pro-union territory. Chaffin believed he saw Mills enter a local union hall and he followed him. Chaffin burst in, brandishing a gun and shouting threats. Some claim he was, quote, belligerently drunk, unquote. Regardless, Chaffin probably was not prepared for what happened next. Bill Petrie, vice president of the local union, confronted Chaffin with his thirty-two pistol and shot him four times in the stomach. In the same breath, Chaffin's deputy was jumped by two other union men, dragged outside, and kicked to the curb. Chaffin stood up, walked away, and took a seat in the lobby of a nearby hotel. Bill Petrie was found not guilty after claiming he shot Chaffin in self-defense. After the shooting, Petrie said, quote, That's what happens when a man carries a toy pistol. That goddamn son of a bitch is liable to get well. I should have had my old forty-four." Unquote. In a second instance, a disgruntled miner walked right into Chaffin's office and shot him in the chest with a revolver. Once more, Chaffin survived. In a final attempt, another miner confronted Don Chaffin with a pistol and supposedly said, quote, Don Chaffin, I'm going to shoot you dead. Unquote. Chaffin pulled out his own pistol and coolly responded, quote, Go ahead. We'll hop into hell together. Unquote. The miner backed down and left. Although found not guilty, the original attack against Chaffin was all the ammunition state officials needed to believe there was a massive, violent conspiracy afoot in their state. They vilified the Union and Frank Keeney especially, and draped Don Chaffin in honors, as his local celebrity was elevated. Following the coal strike of 1919, Keeney was dismayed by the meager gains won by the massive work action. In the midst of a recession, the planned attempt to unionize West Virginia's southern coal fields was a bold one, but both Keeney and UMWA President John L. Lewis knew that it had to be done. Now more than ever, the most surefire way to maintain union rights was to spread union rights. This isolated area of West Virginia would be a truly difficult nut to crack. Besides the heavily patrolled railways, the only way into Logan County lay across the twin-peaked Blair Mountain. The non-union men in the southern field enjoyed very competitive wages with their union counterparts. 
This was done in an active effort to counter the spread of the Union. Additionally, much of the mining done in these non-Union fields was done using machinery. While Union fields in the North still employed many, quote, skilled pick miners, unquote. In the town of Matawan, the Hatfields ran the show, much like Chaffin ran things in Logan. However, following years of corruption and investigations, the Hatfield sheriff was replaced with a Democratic reform candidate who pledged to support the common people. Next, they lost control of the mayorship of the river town. Cable Testerman was a local merchant who ran with the Citizens Party. In 1919, Testerman was vindicated at the polls with a new term. Brought in to replace the old Hatfield chief of police was a new Hatfield. Albert Sidney, or Sid Hatfield, was born just over the state line in Kentucky. When he was only nine years old, his father was killed in his shootout with police. Old habits died a hard death with the Hatfield family. This began Sid's fascination with gunplay. Just under 5'6 and not weighing more than 160 pounds soaking wet, Sid Hatfield seemed to always have a chip on his shoulder. His own family virtually disowned him, and many considered him the byproduct of an affair. Sid, they claimed, quote, wasn't a real Hatfield, unquote. He left school early to work in the mines, but quickly found work above ground as a blacksmith. Once his shift was up, Sid became a man about town who wore swanky suits and wide grins. When he had the money, he replaced two dead teeth with silver and gold fillings, making every smile shine. His dalliances in Matewan were defined by affairs with married women, drinking, fistfights, gambling, and shooting. When he wasn't attempting to seduce someone, he was getting into incredibly violent altercations. He carried two pistols on him at all times and was a perfect shot with either right or left hand. He quit drinking after he found his accuracy diminished. In his early employ as a miner, he got into an altercation with a much older pit boss. In the fight which followed, the pit boss lay dead at Sid's feet. No charges were pressed. The most trouble came from Sid's family. A.B. Hatfield, former police chief, accused Sid of making improper arrests. Sid confronted his distant relative and beat the middle-aged man senseless in the street. No one dare come forward and testify against Sid, and the assault charges were dropped. Life throughout West Virginia's southern coal fields grew increasingly burdensome with, during the winter months of 1920. Following the outbreak of the deadly Spanish flu in West Virginia, company towns hiked up their medical charges. Meanwhile, news from Washington sent waves of excitement through union halls everywhere. A federal commission recently returned a report which concluded that miners were entitled to what James Green says was a, quote, hefty 27% wage increase for UMWA members, unquote. In response to this government report, conservative West Virginia newspapers backed the idea of raising non-union minor wages to thank them for their contributions during the Great War. In April 1920, discontentment began spreading throughout the Mingo County mines. 
The miners were walking off their jobs and demanding to be represented by, quote, an organization of their own craft, unquote. When Mooney and his union organizers arrived in Matewan, they were promised protection by both Sid Hatfield and Mayor Testerman, and they went to work with the zeal of religious proselytizers. After a rousing speech, 300 miners took the oath of union, and the next day, the miners were fired. Mine superintendents were ready to close their mines and, quote, let moss grow over, unquote, before they employ a single union man. More firings followed. Mine operators defended their decision, saying unions were impeding their, quote, constitutional liberty, unquote. After firing the union men, mine operators made a point to start evicting miners and their families. They hired private Baldwin Feltz detectives to serve the eviction notices. Arriving in Matewan, the populous sheriff and mayor did all they could to impede the private detectives in their goals. Union men and stump speeches were the new normal of the town. Mooney pleaded with his new converts to uphold the law and listen to Chief of Police Hatfield. At another rally, a preacher said that any man who signed a yellow dog contract should, quote, go home and ask his wife to chain him in the yard with the dog, unquote. Miners, now unified in solidarity with the Union, vowed to protect their homes. On May 17th, UMWA officials began arriving with thousands of tents. They were preparing for a long fight. On the morning of May 19th, James Green says, quote, Scores of out-of-work miners lined up in Metewan in the front of a store to receive relief funds from the UMWA staffers. Out of one passenger car came a formidable body of men in dark suits, carrying rifles and shotguns, unquote. Among these private agents of capitalist justice was Albert Feltz and C.B. Cunningham. Both had only recently been a part of the Ludlow Massacre. Cunningham manning the machine gun which sprayed the Ludlow tent colony. Additionally, Albert Feltz's younger brother, Lee, arrived later. Upon arrival, Albert Feltz flashed a wad of cash at the mayor and asked for permission to place riflemen atop the general store. The mayor flat-out refused both offers. Feltz shrugged off this refusal and turned to the matter at hand. He said he was ordered to evict a number of miners from their company houses. Mayor Testerman responded that the houses in question did not lie on company land. Therefore, Feltz and his armed mercenaries had no legal right to evict the people living there. Fed up at this second rebuke, Feltz turned on his heels, spit on the ground, and sped toward his objective, the houses up on Stone Mountain. After a phone call informed Sid Hatfield of what had just occurred, he was given permission to arrest the agents for unlawful evictions. Hatfield was irate that innocent people were being thrown out of their homes in his town. He rounded up his deputies, among whom was the 22-year-old Ed Chambers, another sure shot and local playboy. Before leaving with his men, Sid Hatfield exclaimed, quote, Those sons of bitches will never leave here alive. Unquote. 
Hatfield confronted Feltz personally and demanded to see the eviction papers. Feltz said he did not have them, but that it did not matter. At this new information, Hatfield stepped in and attempted to halt further evictions. Feltz must have been confused. Why was this local official siding with poor people? His confusion was rapidly replaced with anger, and he pulled a pistol on Sid Hatfield. Sid Hatfield flashed a mad grin, daring Feltz to try the pistol arrow. Feltz said he would not be bluffed into the open and ambushed. Hatfield stepped forward and said, quote, The man that kills you will be looking you right in the eye. Unquote. Hatfield left the agents to their business but vowed righteous vengeance once they returned to Matawan. Hatfield set to work deputizing a dozen shooters in the town. At 4 p.m., the agents had rumbled back to Matewan. Sid Hatfield confronted Feltz and said he had a warrant for his arrest. The agent petulantly replied that it was he who had a warrant to arrest Hatfield. The two exchanged a tense laugh and continued to argue. The mayor attempted to intercede and read the supposed warrant Feltz had. After a moment's deliberation, the mayor stepped toward Feltz and said, quote, this warrant is bogus, unquote. What happens next is still under dispute. Hatfield testified that Feltz pulled out his pistol and shot the mayor in the stomach, prompting Hatfield to fire his dual pistols in self-defense, killing Feltz immediately. Another witness claims to have seen one of Hatfield's agents shoot Feltz before he responded by shooting the closest person there, the mayor. Another theory put forward by the Baldwin Feltz after the fact, is that Hatfield shot the mayor because he was desperately in love with the man's wife. Regardless of what truly began the firing, what happens next is not up for debate. Agent Cunningham ran forward firing and he was killed instantly by carefully placed riflemen. At the same moment, Lee Feltz attempted to see to his older brother. He was killed instantly by a single rifle round fired by the local hardware store owner. Another agent was wounded in the opening volleys. He tried desperately to drag himself out of harm's way. He was noticed by a deputy, who was also one of the miners who had been evicted. He chased down the detective and shot him dead at close range. Another agent staggered down the street howling, quote, I'm shot to pieces, unquote. A bystander rested them in their house until the footfalls of armed gangs were heard and the man staggered out a window. He was spotted by a deputy and shot in the back. Another two agents died outright in the deluge of gunfire. Not a single one of Hatfield's deputies were killed or injured. Six Baldwin Feltz agents escaped. Two hopped a 515 train as it sped away. One swam for his life and did not stop until he was in Kentucky. Another hid in a barrel, a la the classic DreamWorks film Road to El Dorado. In total, seven Baldwin Feltz detectives lay dead, two of them related to the agency's founder. Two innocent bystanders were killed as well, and Mayor Testerman succumbed to his stomach wound en route to the hospital. 
Completely bewildered by what had just occurred, the mayor continually kept saying, quote, Why did they shoot me? I can't see why they shot me. Unquote. Tom Feltz was distraught and he vowed revenge. This tiny town in West Virginia was now considered by the press to be the epicenter for radical labor violence, and Sid Hatfield became a celebrity, a role to which he was quite suited. Tom Feltz was gathering a massive armed force to enter Matewan, and more bloodshed was promised. The engineer in charge of the train carrying the hundreds of heavily armed Baldwin Feltz would have no part in a shootout. He blew past the Matewan station with reckless abandon and did not stop until he was sure they were safe. The next day, 3,000 stood at the procession for the slain agents, killed for evicting families from their homes. Sid Hatfield, his chief deputy, Ed Chambers, and seven others willingly stood before a West Virginia court. The court charged the men with murder, but the judge presiding was in no one's pocket, and he wished to truly understand what caused the violence at Matewan. All this time, the Union continued to spread like some sort of virus which has yet to magically disappear. It was bristling up against the deadline, or the point in West Virginia where no Union man could expect to pass and live. To break past this deadline, Keeney called for a general strike amongst all West Virginia miners. To Keeney and Mooney's surprise, the miners responded very enthusiastically. The Union leaders and miners of southern West Virginia were trying to change their worlds all at once. It remained to be seen if their efforts would succeed or backfire. Meanwhile, mine operators stuck to their guns and the same regurgitated arguments. It was their prerogative to hire whoever they wanted, fire whoever they wanted, and evict any number of families they saw fit. If the bosses did not possess this right, could they truly be free? The general strike began July 1st, 1920, and almost immediately, strike breakers began arriving imported by company executives. These strike breakers were accosted at the station by hordes of union sympathizers. Operators begged for troops to protect the replacements from, quote, verbal vilification, unquote. On August 21st, the largest labor uprising in American history began with an assault on the borderland mine. In the ensuing attack, six replacement workers were gunned down by miners in the hills, who could easily retreat into Kentucky if threatened. Eight days later, federal troops were deployed to defend coal interest and public safety, for the first time in West Virginia since the Civil War. As troops arrived, the tides turned. The strikers had their backs to the wall early, but they kept the faith and spirits remained high in the tent colonies. Industrialists took advantage of the upcoming state elections as well. They bet on every horse, ensuring domination no matter which way the people voted. In spite of a strong grassroots campaign under an independent pro-labor candidate, the Republican Ephraim Morgan was elected governor. Two weeks following his election, the army deemed the situation controlled. They promptly decamped. In no time at all, armed assaults on mines started up again. In one such assault, a state trooper was murdered by gunmen in the hills. 
The new governor declared Mingo County to be in a, quote, state of insurrection, unquote. Within a week, 500 army men were redeployed in the area. Lawyers for the coal operators were well at work during this time. They got a judge to approve a sweeping injunction against the Union, Keeney, and Hatfield. The ACLU was outraged at the oppressive nature of the injunction, which barred unions from advertising a strike or making speeches in public. They at first sought an appeal, but realized their best chance at gaining sympathetic press was through a, quote, massive civil disobedience campaign, unquote. In December, Mother Jones arrived in Mingo County with Christmas presents for the children and words of encouragement for the strikers. In the freezing cold, martial law was relaxed for Christmas Eve. Striker, replacement, and federal soldier stood arm in arm and sang Silent Night. The murder trial for those accused of instigating the Battle of Matewan was well underway. It would prove to be a sensational trial. Tom Feltz had multiple witnesses prepared to step forward and accuse Sid Hatfield of firing first on Albert Feltz. Feltz also claimed Hatfield killed Mayor Testerman because he, quote, coveted his pretty wife, unquote. These allegations may not have been false. As Jesse Testerman was now Jesse Hatfield by marriage. The two eloped only 12 days after Testerman's agonizing death. Harold Houston was brought in to defend the Matewan Nine who were accused of murder. Many witnesses had already mysteriously left town, and one of the Hatfield clan was mowed down in broad daylight when it was discovered he harbored the agents and agreed to testify against Sid. Two weeks previously, Devil Ants had succumbed to pneumonia, and the press wasted no time in comparing the young gun Sid to the old gunslinger. In the end, it proved nigh impossible to find an impartial jury, as the celebrity of Sid Hatfield had already spread to all corners of West Virginia. The jury returned with a not-guilty verdict. A single juror, an old backwoodsman, said he was ready to sit in the deliberation room, quote, until the mountain turns brown again, unquote, before he would convict a, quote, single Matawan boy, unquote. The Baldwin Felts and the coal operators were disgusted that these free-wheeling boys were able to shoot their men in the open with no justice served. That was their job. The state legislature doubled down on their authoritarianism, vastly increasing the size of the new state police force and passing a special law with Hatfield in mind. This new law stated that suspects could be prosecuted outside of their home county, thereby denying them a jury of their peers. All throughout May, guerrilla raids and attacks on miners were occurring along the Kentucky-West Virginia border. Imbued by the government of West Virginia with extra-legal power, James R. Brockus, state police captain, led what was planned to be the first of many counter-insurgency raids into the Tug River Valley. His cars became wedged in the mud, and his men quickly came under rifle fire from the hills. The police made a hasty retreat. Later in May, a three-day-long battle between miners and coal mine operators ended in an unknown number of deaths 
and required an official ceasefire to end the fighting. A year following the Battle of Matawan, violence had not ceased. It had only increased in savagery. The governor declared Mingo County to be in a state of, quote, war, riot, and insurrection, unquote. And he invoked his state's emergency public safety law. Essentially, martial law reigned in Mingo County. The enforcement of the law was left to Major Thomas B. Davis. He was given the entire state police force, 800 special police, and 250 armed vigilantes. The major began shutting down newspapers and jailing known unionists. He held these men without charges in overcrowded local jail cells. Several initial arrests were of men simply reading the condemned paper before they knew it was condemned. It was as severe a system of authoritarianism as that which was seen in the Soviet Union under Joseph V. Stalin. As fear and authoritarian rule gripped Mingo County, it was clear the slightest spark could set off an even more violent conflagration. In spring of 1920, a black miner named Frank Ingham was held without charges and nearly beaten to death by men with clubs who were acting as so-called officers of the law. He played dead and prayed as the police beat his skull in. After the police thought he was dead, they left his body on the ground. Ingham somehow managed to get up and walk. His head was gushing blood, and he limped toward a light he saw in the distance. Two Union trainmen found Ingham and saved his life. From that day forth... Ingham was at the front line of the strike movement. He believed he owed it to God and to the Union men that saw beyond skin-deep differences. Miners became more incensed the more their rights were denied. In response, the Major cracked down even more. The Major could not be everywhere at once and the miners bet on this. They waited patiently, biding their time in the hills for their moment. When it came, they struck with reckless abandon. In small teams, the miners severely disrupted several mines and killed many guards and strikebreakers. To break the strikers' resolve, Davis would deem it necessary to occupy the tent colonies in which they lived and deprive the miners of easy access to the Kentucky state line. On June 5th, he was given pretext for the invasion— after a lost driver sporadically drove into the Union camp, prompting Union guards to fire several warning shots. Within a few hours, State Police Captain Brockus got together an infiltration squad. After arresting 40 miners, the police returned to the colony once more. The miners knew they were coming this time, and they opened fire on their vehicles from the campgrounds and from the surrounding hills. After a feeble show of force, the police retreated. Major Davis and Captain Brockus got together with a much larger strike force for their next operation. Their caravan was twenty automobiles deep, and they broke off and headed to cover any exits to the colony, when Davis's men came under inaccurate fire from the hills. Arthur Breedlove was a black miner, was likely attending the call of nature behind a tree when the raid began. When confronted by state trooper James A. Bowles, he stepped out with his hands above his head. 
Bowles shouted, quote, Hold your hands up. God damn you. If you have anything to say, say it fast. Unquote. Breedlove muttered, quote, Lord have mercy, unquote, as Bowles murdered him where he stood. Police proceeded to destroy the whole colony. Tents were ripped apart, furniture destroyed, and 56 men marched at rifle point to the local jail. James Green says, quote, The prisoners stood through the night in a 20-by-40-foot cell in water polluted with human waste from clogged toilets. Two days later, all but four were released, unquote. The raid and the death of Arthur Breedlove brought new life to the strike movement, where previously, if left to its own devices, the strike might have fizzled out. Additionally, a stunning win for the beleaguered miners of the state was tallied in the West Virginia Supreme Court of all places. This judicial body decreed that a government could not, quote, by mere order convert the civil officers into an army and clothe them with military powers, unquote. On top of this, Capitol Hill came to the miners' defense. An official investigation was initiated into the declaration of martial law and the conditions of those in the many tent colonies. Senators likened treatment of West Virginia's miners to British authorities' tactics toward Irish Republicans. Keeney was energized as he saw the top of the hill, and he hiked all the harder to its zenith. Finally, this great greed could be defeated. He said, quote, I haven't left the class I was born into yet, and I hope I never will. I've seen the time when I didn't have the right to eat in this state. I've seen the time when I was refused a job. I've been served with eviction papers and thrown out of my house. I've seen women and children brutally treated in mining camps. I've seen hell turned loose. Now they call me a radical because I insist on holding what the miners of the state had gained. I am a native West Virginian. I don't propose to get out of the way when a lot of capitalists from New York and London come down here and tell us to get off the earth. They played that game with the American Indian. They gave him the end of a log to sit on and then pushed him off that. We don't propose to be pushed off. West Virginia will be organized, and it will be organized completely. Unquote. Senate hearings convened in July 1921 to much press and bitterness on both sides of the debate. Unfortunately for the miners, senators were more interested in the reports of violence and murder a few hundred miles from Washington, D.C., than the plight of tens of thousands of laborers. The hearings accomplished very little, and over 30 miners still languished, detained without charges, in Mingo County. Keeney had vowed to save these men. Sid Hatfield had come out worse for wear from the Senate hearing. His ego was bruised, but his smile still shined. He was, however, deemed an accessory to a separate murder of a Baldwin Feltz agent, and was meant to stand trial in McDowell County. He was convinced by his wife and lawyer to leave his guns at home. His lawyer miraculously managed to get a change of venue approved. The defendants needed to appear before the judge as a mere formality. It was August 1st as Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers walked side by side with their wives. They saw several Baldwin Felts lurking on the courtroom's top rungs. 
as Hatfield turned on the steps to wave to several defendants on the bottom of the stairs, he was shot, first in the arm, and then once in the chest. As he twisted in agony, he was struck twice more in the back and died instantly. Ed Chambers was struck in the initial fire, and he was hurled down the steps, quote, blood gushing from his neck, unquote, as his wife rushed to his aid. The assailants descended the stairs, and the shooter, Charles Lively, put a bullet in Chambers' head as his wife cried over her husband's body. Two pistols were planted on the men's bodies by officers investigating the scene, and the Baldwin Feltz assassins faced no repercussions. Over their remains, Sam Montgomery cried as thunder shook the earth and rain burst forth that even the heavens wept for, quote, these two boys, unquote. Outside the town of Clothier, in nearby Boone County, a galloping troop of cavalry handled the man roughly after an accident. Once he had returned to town, he began to embellish the story to all who were within earshot. Instead of five state troopers, it was fifty. Instead of roughing him up, they were abusing women and children. They sent the town into a frenzy, Armed miners began a manhunt, and word reached Don Chaffin. He ordered the raids halted, as he knew violence was truly about to explode. The government of West Virginia did nothing to ease tensions. Governor Morgan said the trouble in Mingo County was solely due to outside agitators, and that mine operators had done nothing wrong. Additionally, he refused to condemn, or even mention, the killings of Hatfield and Chambers on the steps of a courtroom. Savoy Holt, a miner, rode up and down West Virginia coal country and reported the news, saying to any miner who would stop and listen, quote, If you are men, unquote, you should arrive armed in Marmot. They arrived in their thousands, many standing atop moving railway cars or riding in on horseback or in trucks. This was another plan which was devised by Keeney and Mooney, and the spectacle was undeniable. James Green says, quote, The marchers were not simply out for revenge. They had embarked on a mission to free their brothers imprisoned under Major Davis's military regime. Unquote. Don Chaffin was given a new privilege and authorized to form a home guard. Chaffin went to work immediately and mustered hundreds of local businessmen and local miners to arms. Mother Jones, meanwhile, was doing everything she could to prevent her boys from being thrown into a battle they could not win. In the past few years, Jones had been everywhere, even traveling to Mexico City to take part in the 1921 Pan-American Federation of Labor. Here, Madreones was greeted by Mexican laborites and was the guest of honor at a reception by the Mexican president, Alvaro Obregón. Obregón was on the losing side of a bloody civil war, which was being waged in Mexico. He was saved from horrendous conditions in an Arizona prison when Mother Jones stepped in. She was now trying to save the lives of possibly thousands of miners. Jones claimed to have a copy of a letter sent by President Harding. On August 24, 1921, she was at the Lens Creek encampment reading this supposed address. Keeney heard the letter and cried foul. When he tried to reach for it, Jones shouted, quote, Go to hell, none of your business. Unquote. 
Kinney turned to the armed miners and said, quote, Well, boys, that telegram is a fake. So is Mother Jones, unquote. It was a final coup for the ages. Mother Jones was lying, it's true. But she was lying to save her boys from injury, just like any mother would. She stormed off and never again returned to West Virginia. She wrote the betrayal of Keeney in front of the miners left her in bed for a year, with flare-ups of rheumatism and nervous breakdowns. It was a crossing the Rubicon moment. Keeney must have understood it would be incredibly difficult to turn back now. On August 25th, the miners began their march. For 20 miles, men from every corner of the globe marched alongside one another. They marched for the 30 miners still stuck in jail. They marched for basic union representation. They marched for each other. John Brown's body resounded in the hills of West Virginia once more. Now it was sung by unionist miners instead of union soldiers. And now, instead of the classic chorus, the words were changed to, We'll hang Don Chaffin to a sour apple tree. An automobile drove alongside the overall brigade, consisting of some of the wives, sisters, and daughters of the miners who had nursing experience. Everyone knew full well they were marching toward battle and possible death. These miners were not afraid, however. They faced death every single day underground, and a majority of them had fought in the trenches against the German Hun. Some had fought against Filipino natives, others against the Spanish regular army up the slopes of San Juan Hill and amongst the mangroves in Puerto Rico. Many wore their uniforms and some still had their gas masks, but all wore the red bandana. These rednecks were led by Bill Blizzard, a young, brash and bold union organizer, Beyond this, they were divided into, quote, squads, platoons, companies, and battalions, unquote, which were led by union subdivision leaders. This was the largest civil insurrection in American history sans the Civil War. However, it is not mentioned in the Harper's Encyclopedia of Military History, while much smaller insurrections in different countries are covered extensively. I think it's important to note this event. Chaffin was ready for the rabble. He had been stockpiling weapons and ammunitions for such an eventuality. James Green says this cache included, quote, 10 machine guns, 1,000 rifles, and 67,000 rounds of ammunition, unquote. He ordered the 4,000 men under his command to take up defensive positions on the ridges surrounding Logan. He also ordered three biplanes for reconnaissance and air attack. Chaffin said he would use, quote, every engine of modern warfare, unquote. The stage was set for a grand battle. For the veterans on both sides, the hills and forests reminded them of French battlefields. The trenches, parapets, and machine gun nests dug for defensive purposes only added to the feeling. August 26th was the final chance for cooler heads to prevail, and President Harding was hoping to resolve the issue before it was too late. General Harry H. Bandholtz arrived in West Virginia in lieu of federal infantry, 
as many critics argued the use of infantry in state and local law enforcement disputes was a violation of the Posse Comitatus Act. Bandholtz was a four-star general who served with distinction in the Great War, and he was not one for mincing words. When asked how he would counter the miners' offensive, he replied, quote, Gas. We dropped tear gas all over the place. If they refused to disperse, then we'd open up, with artillery and everything, unquote. He met with UMWA leaders Keeney and Mooney. He said this was their last chance, and if they did not disperse their people, he would snuff out the rebellion, quote, like that. And he snapped his fingers under the men's noses. He closed by saying, quote, this will never do. There are several million unemployed in this country. This thing might assume proportions that would be hard to handle. Unquote. Keeney truly started to understand the powers arrayed against him, and he seemed to have folded his all in hand. He called on the miners to turn back. The miners nearly denounced Keeney, but he forced acquiescence to his way with a voice vote. When Chaffin heard this, he began standing down his men. Lewis White, a unionist not present at the voice vote, peddled up to the assembled miners. White was described by friends as, quote, mean as a snake, unquote. He had no time for these two union leaders trying to prevent the coming struggle. He shouted, quote, oh, hell, what you two need is a bullet between each of your eyes, unquote. He claimed Chaffin's thugs were murdering women and children around the town of Blair. White gathered a group of several hundred of the most militant miners and hijacked a train bound for the mountain town. After the battle, Mooney wrote he was convinced White was an agent provocateur who deliberately instilled anger into the generally peaceful march and the generally peaceful response by authorities. Upon hearing of White's hijacking, Chaffin called his men back to their posts in ready position to rain down fire. For many other miners, they believed Keeney's speech was another classic ruse. This way, the Union could not be directly culpable for any crimes. Regardless of Keeney's true intentions, most armed miners remained around the camp just outside Logan. Passwords were shared. The miners' code was, I come creepin', while Chaffin's men used a single word, Amen. August 27th proved the most fateful day of the standoff and would truly begin the Battle of Blair Mountain. Chaffin inexplicably ordered Captain Brockus to detain Unionists who had disarmed police two weeks previously. Why in the world would he do this? Who can say? Perhaps Chaffin believed a show of force would end the standoff with relatively little damage to each side. Regardless, Brockus went into enemy territory with his squad. They arrested several unarmed miners and proceeded to use them as human shields when the same police squad confronted five armed miners. The standoff was broken by a deputy who shouted, quote, We've come after you, goddamn miners. Unquote. As the firing died down, three of the miners used as human shields lay writhing on the ground, mortally wounded. The captain and his men frantically retreated, and in their haste, four deputies became prisoners of an armed minor patrol. By the morning of August 28th, news of the harebrained excursion had spread. 
while also being embellished with more stories of savage oppression of women and children. The few hundreds of miners who had left since the vote rapidly returned to their camps. One group borrowed a Gatling gun and ammunition from a local company store. It was estimated the miners had de facto control of over 500 miles of West Virginia territory by the day's end. President Harding feebly proclaimed the miners must go home. His proclamations did not move the armed and angry men from their goals. Free their comrades, kill Don Chaffin, and storm Logan. As the two sides waited for the general engagement, Bill Blizzard sent two scouting parties ahead in the darkness. One was led by Baptist minister John Wilburn. He said, quote, The time has come for me to lay down my Bible and pick up my rifle and fight for my rights. Unquote. Their patrol set out at dawn, and they inadvertently ran into John Gore and his patrol of deputy sheriffs. When they gave the wrong code word, Amen, Wilburn and his squad decimated the three where they stood. Losing one mortally wounded in the close-range fight, they headed back down the mountain to report their findings. It was 90 degrees on August 31st when the full-scale battle first erupted on the slopes of Blair Mountain. The Unionists had to struggle uphill against multiple planned defensive positions, so the going was tough. In the north, the miners were launching their most successful assaults. Pinned by elevated machine gun fire, the miners attempted to turn the defenders' flank. Ed Reynolds was here with his squad's pilfered machine gun. They faced off against 300 deputies with two machine guns of their own. The miners under Reynolds managed to take the deputies' flank, but the deputies counterattacked with a force of 16 men who fought ferociously for the hilltop. The deputies kept up their fire until a machine gun overheated and they were forced to pull back. Chaffin hastily deployed reserves to create a second defensive line along Crooked Creek Gap. That night, a car full of miners told Mooney they were going up Blair Mountain and taking Logan, and there was nothing the Union, Don Chaffin, or the President of the United States could do that would stop it. One of the miners said, quote, The best thing you can do is to clear out and stay out until we get through. Unquote. Mooney and Keeney had clearly lost control of the situation. The genie would not go back in its lamp. Their own actions had caused the demise of unions in West Virginia. Today, West Virginia is a right-to-work state, and union members make up only 4% of the state's population, much less than half the national average. Back in 1921, Keeney and Mooney were both indicted for crimes, and both decided to leave the state, abandoning their wives, children, and in-laws. On Labor Day, new assaults were made up Blair Mountain, but as the miners pushed closer to enemy positions, the harder the fight became. Machine gun fire absolutely devastated the miners' ranks. As if to make matters worse, the biplanes, which were originally used by Chaffin for air reconnaissance, were now dropping homemade explosives on the miners from the sky. This was the second time American authorities used aerial bombardment against its own citizens. The first was in 1921 against the black civilians in Tulsa, Oklahoma. American authorities would not aerially bomb civilians again until 1985, 
when helicopters set ablaze a black neighborhood in Philadelphia with incendiary explosives. Fortunately for the miners, Chaffin's pilots were poor shots, and none of their bombs hit home or injured any miner. In spite of the miners' lack of offensive staying power, Chaffin was growing increasingly nervous about his position. General Bandholtz seemed to be in a similar boat. He telegraphed Washington about the need for federal troops, quote, without delay, unquote. Goaded by his dispatch to General, Harding finally authorized the deployment of 2,100 federal troops to southern West Virginia. The news of federal troops arriving caused cheering to erupt all along the fighting line. As the miners knew federal troops meant an end to the fighting, they would not seriously think of fighting Uncle Sam's men. To negotiate an end to the fighting once and for all, the head of the insurgent army, Bill Blizzard, met with an army captain. The captain informed Blizzard that those with permits could keep their firearms, otherwise they would be confiscated. But no harm would befall the miners in an extrajudicial manner. The next day, September 4, 1921, miners came out in droves from the hills. Many were unarmed. Blizzard turned to the captain and Riley said, quote, When we need him again, we'll know where to look for him. Unquote. The overall death toll from the battle cannot be known, but there were plenty of guesses. At first, newspapers reported 30 to 50 miners killed and another 50 to 100 wounded. I've also seen the unverified number of 100 to 300 miners killed. These men were veterans, so they understood their terrain and they used it extensively for cover. Regardless of the casualties suffered, the fallout from the battle would be swift. Approximately 900 miners would be arrested. Keeney and Mooney would turn themselves in. The prosecution of the miners and leaders hinged on proof of treason, which was incredibly hard to pin on someone in West Virginia at the time. The end result was that Keeney, Mooney, Blizzard, and countless miners were acquitted. The few who served time usually served short sentences. In spite of the hiccup at Blair Mountain, President Harding was still promising a, quote, return to normalcy, unquote. In many respects, the United States did return to some type of normal. Following the death of President Harding in office, his vice president, Calvin Coolidge, took the reins of power. He refused the second term, claiming 10 years would be too long a term for any president. Defeating the Democrats in a landslide, Herbert Hoover became the new commander-in-chief. Welfare capitalism reigned throughout most of industrialized America. Additionally, the independence granted by the automobile freed people from the company-town-company-house relationship. People became more independent, and their jobs offered more solvents to their woes. Immigration was curtailed, and now strict quotas denied countless thousands their opportunity for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This all resulted in declining union membership. As the 20s roared and Americans built cars at ludicrous speeds, the labor movement in America withered on the vine, denied water and sunlight from the ruling classes. The most telling barometer of the times was the sensational Sacco and Vanzetti murder trials and the aforementioned rise of the KKK and the far-right American Legion. Niccolo Sacco was a highly skilled shoemaker, 
while Bartolomeo Vanzetti did a number of odd jobs outside. When Vanzetti discovered his friend had mysteriously died while in police custody, he began the process of forming a protest movement for his deceased comrade. On May 5, 1920, he and Sacco had been arrested for a double murder committed the month previous. The outrage at their arrest, trial, and appeals kept them alive for years, but they must have realized their days were numbered. The judge had it in for the men, saying, quote, Although they may not have actually committed the crime, they are nevertheless morally culpable, unquote. Speaking to Elizabeth Gurley Flynn on his impending execution, Vanzetti said in his very Italian way, quote, I have a too big pair of mustache, and the Americans do not know if I am a bear or a man, and consequently feel unsure of my presence, unquote. They were electrocuted to death on August 22, 1927. Violent demonstrations followed their deaths across the globe. Tokyo, South America, and Germany saw leftists retaliate at the death of two supposedly innocent men. The show is in their memory, as the anniversary of their execution is today. There were still examples of ferocious labor opposition, but it was crushed, and they were usually in quote-unquote, out-of-the-way places. For example, sugar workers created the High Wage Movement, or HWM, in the U.S. territory of Hawaii. When they struck in 1924, they were replaced. In their anger, they kidnapped several strikebreakers and held them hostage in their union headquarters. Police arrived with guns and batons, and the Filipino migrants they engaged with were armed as well. In the Hanapepe massacre, or battle, over 20 people would die, most being Filipino unionists. The labor rights movement was also capable of committing horrendous slaughters in their own right. In Heron, Illinois, one of the state's worst massacres was committed by unionists against replacement workers. Over 20 were beaten, stabbed, shot, and tortured by the entire town's populace. A dying man was offered water by a journalist, and the journalist was threatened with his life. Following years of boom, the system was about to go bust. The Federal Reserve had been warning companies and credit institutions for months about wanton speculation. In their greed, the red flags and warnings were ignored. October 24, 1929, or Black Thursday, was followed by a week of collapsing stock prices. Unemployment soared to an unprecedented 22%, and Hooverville sprang up across the nation. From these ashes, labor emerged battle-hardened and prepared to face this new world. The very idea of democracy was being challenged. In Italy, Benito Mussolini, a one-time socialist, had gained control of the country at the head of a far-right fascist party. He was preaching the end of liberal democracy. In 1933, Adolf Hitler had risen to power through manipulation and political violence in Germany. In the Soviet Union, Stalin had begun his purge of all political enemies, creating a state religion built around his adoration, while he starved untold numbers of Ukrainians and usurped their resources. In America, 
the governor of New York was challenging Coolidge in the presidential elections that November. He brought with him a message of hope, reassurance, and security. He said we had only to, quote, fear, fear itself, unquote. America would remain the shining city on the hill, even if the very fabric of American governance had to change to meet the challenges of a new world. Franklin Delano Roosevelt promised America a new deal, one which would include the rights of laborers of every stripe. The unions, which had been lying dormant and stagnant since welfare capitalism's supposed supremacy, were surging. They would find new allegiances within the government itself, and through these allegiances form stronger bonds as American institutions. The unprecedented power which labor was about to be given showed the true desperation of the American government. Only now that both extremes seemed to be closing in on liberal democracy did Democrats, North and South, band together to form one of the strangest political coalitions in history. Racists rubbed elbows with liberals, and big business reformists shook hands with avowed socialist immigrants. Through the sleaze and compromise, the Democrats managed to hold the country together through an unprecedented time of turbulence. They would carry their policies through the Truman years, when the rubber finally met the road with Eisenhower, and the pendulum finally swung back. To see what the workers wrote, you will have to wait for the next episode of Turning Tides, in which the New Deal shakes up America, America shakes up the world, and America makes itself the world's babysitter. In the aftermath of two magnanimous conflicts, World War II and Korea, America would find itself in the grips of a new Red Scare. Stalinism and Maoism were the new bywords for the American right to describe all things they couldn't understand. Joseph McCarthy and his gang of reactionaries in the House of Un-American Activities would trod on the Constitution, much like Attorney General Palmer in 1919, to the disgrace of the country and to his victims' historical vindication, while across Harlan County, workers would ask each other, which side are you on? Thank you all so much again for listening. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone, and I have never been a member of the Communist Party. They refuse to return my emails. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to rate and review Turning Tides on whatever platform you use to listen and share the show on social media. It really helps us to bring the show to more listeners. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'd also like to say thank you to Movo Photo. We use their sound equipment for this podcast as well as all of our other projects at Antics Entertainment. They make great equipment at great prices, and we really appreciate that they make content creating so accessible for indie creators like us. Check them out on social media at Movo Photo, M-O-V-O-P-H-O-T-O. Thank you again.